Welcome to Chasing Evil. I'm Chris Gotzik. I'm joining you today from a sheriff's substation in Jackson County, Mississippi. The case of Jacob Scott is both simple and horrific. He held one of the most trusted positions in our society, a parent. He abused that position and betrayed his family, and in particular, his 14-year-old stepdaughter. As you'll hear, Jacob went to great lengths to avoid law enforcement, but when they finally caught up with him and he was tried... He was found guilty of 14 counts of child sex abuse, and he eventually impregnated his stepdaughter. He was sentenced to 85 years without the possibility of parole. Today, I'm very fortunate to have Jacob's ex-wife and the victim's mother, and as you'll find out, she is a victim as well. She's here to tell you her story so it doesn't happen to you. I want to welcome everyone to the podcast, and Jamie, thank you very much for coming in and sharing your story. I think people have a lot to learn from you. You're welcome. We also have Jeremy Stillwell, who's a senior inspector and deputy marshal with the Gulf Coast Regional Fugitive Task Force, and Sergeant Eddie Clark and Captain Randy Muffley, both from the Jackson County Sheriff's Department, and Beverly Vogel and John Allen, who are both special agents with the Coast Guard Investigative Service. Welcome, everyone. All right, Jamie, let's start at the beginning and talk about how you met Jacob Scott and how he came into your life. Um... I met him at a a bar, and we talked, um, and then we just started talking after that a little bit, and then eventually um, we started seeing each other. What about him was attractive to you in terms of his personality? Because obviously there were no flags at that time, but it was somebody who was appealing to you. So what was it about his personality that was appealing? He was very outgoing, um, friendly, outgoing. And easy to talk to. Yeah. And you had to make sure that he was a nice guy because you had how many kids at home? I had three. Three kids at home. And what were their ages at that time? At that time... um, I had a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a two-year-old. Uh-huh. How long after you started seeing him did you get married? Uh, About almost a year and a half later. Mm Mm-hmm. And you really got to know him, and he got to know your kids in that year and a half. Yes. And was there anything, I mean, when you look back on this, I mean, everybody's looking for the for the how, the why, and, and the red flags that maybe, that maybe were missed. But in this like courtship time, was there anything that, that caused you to raise an eyebrow or you were just thinking more and more that he's a, he's a, good, he's a good man? Nothing uh, during that time caught my eye um, as I look back. Nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was just a friendly guy, you know, um, and your kids liked him. Yeah, my kids loved him. 
And he seemed pretty good with the two-year-old. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Which she had her own father at the time, too, Mm -hmm. so. Right. The abuse doesn't occur until your daughter, who we'll call Donna, until Donna is 14 years old? Yes. And was there anything in that time growing up that there were there any, again, I'm looking for red flags. I know people are wondering if, you know, what, what, what can they be on the lookout for? Was there any red flags in the way that he was uh, treating, you know, Donna and your other daughters? Uh, any, any affection that just seemed maybe it was a little too affectionate or, or anything that kind of just raised your spidey senses? Now, not not during that time, uh-huh. but he was very manipulating mm-hmm. and abusive, physically and mentally, and I'll, so I think it kind of made me. Now that I, you know, during that time, not see things right. clearly. Right. Um. But now that I. After it happened, I started trying to think back, and now I do see red flags. Um, There were times they weren't real close um, after her dad passed away at eight. And Donna's dad passed away. Yes. Mm -hmm. And after that, they got along, um, but he was just real. um, He wasn't as aggressive with her as he was my son. Um, but now that the red flags that I see are, he started getting closer with her and getting along with her more. And at the time I just thought maybe he's finally calming down. He wasn't being so aggressive with me. So when I say all this, he changed the way he was acting. Mm -hmm. Things changed the way he was acting towards her. He started being closer to her and taking her to do things. And what about what about your your older daughter? No, I didn't. There was right. nothing really. He zeroed in on Donna. Right. Mm-hmm. Donna seemed to enjoy being with him, or was there any ever reluctance on her part to to go with him anywhere? There were a few times now that she would. There were a few times that she would, you know, ask me to go or, like, kind of keep on wanting me to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would, but um, there wasn't a lot of reluctance that she showed. Right. So the abuse started when she was 14. As a mother, that's, that's your worst nightmare. Yes. Even while it was going on, why do you think your daughter didn't come to you? I think she didn't come to me because he was very, like I said, abusive. Uh-huh. And um, he, I know that he threatened a lot. Like, you know, he, he, he hit me, but he didn't hit them. Uh-huh. He would get real aggressive with me, and sometimes I wouldn't even understand why he would get aggressive with me or would be mad at me at times. Mm-hmm. And this is during the period of the abuse? Yes. Mm-hmm. So you think she was too scared uh, to tell anyone? Yes. Do you know where the abuse happened? 
Yes, I do now. And now the red flags, again, going back to that, um, he started, she always loved her back scratched and things like that. Mm. So um, she had started, like, letting him scratch her back. And at the time, I didn't think anything about it. I thought maybe things were getting better around our home. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's when the abuse was happening. Mm -hmm. He always woke up at night for our whole relationship, um, even before our marriage, and would go and sleep on the couch because he said he had PTSD and just couldn't sleep. Right. So he, he would was, always... He was in the military. Yes. Uh-huh. So he would always go and sleep on the couch. Well, I never thought anything at the time. Sure. But now, you know, um, just things started changing between the two of them that I didn't see at the time. I thought it was... You know, that things getting better around our home, not that would be happening. Mm-hmm. So you might think that when the abuse started happening, that she might be more afraid of him. But it doesn't sound like that's what she showed to no. you. She did not show it to me, but I think she knew from us talking now that mm-hmm. I would go crazy you know Mm -hmm. like i would flip out on him and if she told me and you know he would say that he would do things to me if she told me told her you know he would hurt you if she told if she told you Mm -hmm. can you tell everybody how did the abuse start between the two of them has donna has donna shared that with you Yes, she has some, not a lot of it, Um, but with the back scratching and prior to that, he, she told me that um, he would, a lot of times he would like tell me that she was doing stuff he heard, that she was doing stuff with her friends that she shouldn't have been doing. So then he would come and accuse her and stuff like that. And I think that's a lot of the grooming process starting. Uh-huh. That was a couple of years of that? Yes. Mm-hmm. The day that he took it to the next level, the day that he betrayed everyone's trust, did that occur in the house? Um, um, I'm not sure about the first time. Uh-huh. I know... A lot of them did occur in her bedroom at the house. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that is just—it's just a worst—it's just a worst nightmare. Especially when I'm sleeping in the next room. Yeah, that's awful. And he got her pregnant. Yes. Who decided to uh, go to the police? Uh, she had went to stay with her sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, my older daughter, and um, she took her to the police station. What happened when she filed a, a report? I, bl- I the believe al- I was. I believe I was on call during that time frame. We we work areas, and and our victim lived in in Hurley, so it was going to be my case. I was called in. Uh, her sister had brought her in 
making allegations that she was being sexually assaulted by her stepfather. I was present for the interview. Uh, the interview was done by uh, one of our female detectives. She disclosed that, that she was being sexually abused by her stepfather and was currently pregnant. Uh, at that point, we, we notified DHS uh, to what we had. They responded and they took custody of our victim. DHS being? Uh, Department of Human Services. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they actually took custody of her and transported her to the uh, Singer River Emergency Room to be examined. Uh-huh. Uh, and Jamie, when did you find out that this was going on? So, so I thought that day that she had went, her and my daughter had got an accident or something because the somebody called him on the phone, Jacob, and told him to come to the hospital. And I kept, so we left to go to the hospital and I kept asking him questions and he wouldn't answer me. And I kept saying, well, why would they call you? I'm the mom, you're nothing to him. And he wouldn't say anything. And then all of a sudden he starts doing this fake cry that he used to do and told me that he had been, he and Donna had been doing stuff. And then I looked, I looked at him and I was like, what are you talking about? Why would she be at the hospital? What, what's going on? And then he started crying again. And then I just started hitting him and punching him while he's driving down the road. And then I started calling the hospital to see how she was, like what, he still wouldn't tell me anything. You had an idea when he said that. Yes, not about the pregnancy, but just that that's why she would be there. Mm -hmm. And um, so then he said he had to use the bathroom because two weeks prior to that, he started like having stomach issues. Mm. So he stopped at the store to use the bathroom and I left him there and went to the hospital. And that's when they were waiting outside for me and I told them what he had admitted to me and where I left him. Right, right. And Eddie, it was you who uh, who had called Jacob. Yes, uh, we agreed I, I was gonna call him and uh, we, we did wanna talk to him. At that point, you know, the phone had been ringing a lot. We knew that and uh, we, we agreed to, to call him, which I did, and told him that his stepdaughter, Donna, was currently in the emergency room, and we needed him and her mother there at the hospital. Mm-hmm. He didn't ask any questions. He said, thank you, we're on the way. Uh, at that point, we did go to the hospital. Uh, I was standing outside the emergency room when, uh, when Jamie walked up. She was clearly uh, distraught, crying very extremely upset uh, I did ask her uh, where where's Jacob at which point she I believe she told me I left him uh, at a store down the road uh, at, at that point myself and another deputy uh, drove to where we were told it was probably about a mile away from the hospital to where mm-hmm. uh, we were told that she dropped him off I believe it was a gas station uh, I did locate him walking in the parking lot at that time. I uh, took him into custody and drove to the Jackson County Sheriff's Department with him. 
Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. When I arrived in the parking lot, I had explained to him that, uh, that there were allegations made against him by his stepdaughter, and I was going to give him his opportunity to give his side of the story in this if he wished to talk to me. At which time he said, no, I want a lawyer. I'm not going to speak. Mm-hmm. Those were really the only words that he spoke to me. Uh, I then drove him to the Jackson County Jail where he was booked in on uh, one count of sexual battery. Uh, before we had responded to the hospital, I had obtained search warrants for his body and for his cell phone. Those were both collected at the time of his arrest. We did execute a search warrant and uh, collect his DNA at that point. Uh, He did have questions uh, as to why we were collecting his DNA, and I told him at that point that uh, Donna had been examined at the hospital and was pregnant. Uh, Mm -hmm. He he became visibly upset uh, at that point, almost fainted. Uh, We left him there at the jail and and started our investigation uh, i believe uh, jamie was interviewed by the same female detective that mm-hmm. interviewed uh that interviewed donna right uh, and the case kind of went from there we started collecting evidence uh serving search warrants uh, we did find a multitude of evidence in this case uh, against him what were the most damning pieces of evidence uh, i think his cell phone, she, our victim had told us that he had photographed uh, himself uh, doing this to the victim. There mm-hmm. were photographs that he, that he had taken. Uh, we had those on the cell phone of the actual act. And is that, uh, is that common now that people take pictures? I, uh, I think it cell? is. Uh, it's almost like a trophy. Uh-huh. I honestly believe that's why he still had that in his phone. Right. Um, we also, you know, were told during the initial interview, uh, with Donna that, that he had provided her with morning after pills. Uh, we did find receipts, uh, for those pills, which were purchased with his credit card at a CVS in Hurley. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think that was extremely damning. You know, eventually, uh, the baby was born. We already had his DNA from the search warrant. We obtained uh, DNA from, from the child. Mm-hmm. We sent that to the state crime lab, which it did come back that Jacob was indeed the father. Things went well in the case. Uh, you know, I, I felt horrible for Jamie. We stayed in touch. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that happened to her in this that was just unbelievable. 
you know, she had already had uh, the rug snatched out from under her feet, and now she was losing everything. You know, it was it was a very hard case to work. Mm-hmm. I, I felt extremely bad for her in the situation that she was put in. It, it was it was horrible. But um, mm-hmm. but we did get uh, an indictment, which I knew we were going to get. When we originally charged him, we charged him with one count of sexual battery. Of course, he bonded on that on that count. Right. That's not that's not enough. Right. It's it's not enough. Uh, he it was a high bond, but he did bond on that, which we we figured he was. There were stipulations to his bond. Right. Do you know which, why it was only charged with one count? Well, in these and is cases, one count equivalent to one occurrence? Correct. It is, but in these cases. Uh, you're still you're still actively working the case, right. so there's there's more you're developing more and more as you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time of indictment, of course, he was he was indicted for 14 counts of sexual battery, but uh, you know it it's just the way that it goes. Uh-huh. Uh, you know it's it's rare to be able to to make an arrest right off the bat like that, but his own statements. To his to Jamie gave us enough probable cause to affect an arrest that day. Right. Uh, otherwise, more than likely, we would not have had enough to make an arrest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is common. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I say, he he did make bond. He was given stipulations of his bond, and he immediately violated mm-hmm. them. And Jamie, how did you feel that he had made bond? Did that I mean, were you guys terrified that he was potentially going to? We come? were because of the. We knew how aggressive and abusive he was, mm-hmm. and he had already threatened her so much um, that we were scared that he was going to come after us, you know, and do something to us. I mean, right. he had our whole family scared. I'm assuming since he was in the Army, he probably kept a, a firearm or two? Oh, a lot. There were a lot in the home, and Eddie and some of the others that came out to the house that night told me that I should get the firearms out of the house just in case, you right, know. Right. During their initial interview with her, with Donna, she she had it expressed, she was extremely terrified of him, that he had threatened right. um, not only her but her mother if, if she ever said anything about what was going on, about the sexual abuse, that he was going to kill her, her mother, and himself. Right. If she ever said anything. And she was extremely terrified um, at, when she was interviewed that he was going to do something, you know. Yeah. That seems to be a common thing to have a, to threaten the rest of the family if, if you if you Most don't. definitely, yeah. And it's, yeah. it's clearly an effective tactic. It, it most definitely was. Uh, you know, luckily, she had the courage to come forward uh-huh. and tell her story to us, you know, or who knows. Who knows? Right. After his indictment, uh, he was his attorneys uh, got with the DA, worked out a plea deal. Uh, I think he was also in court with Jamie on on the divorce. Uh, the I do know that during the plea deal, he had been arrested for not paying Jamie. He was also about to be sentenced for the that that following Thursday. Right. He he was he was due to plead guilty to the to our charges in open court. So he had a lot to lose that week. 
He had a lot to lose that week. Uh, it was it was go it was go time. The day for him to surrender himself came. Correct. Yeah. And he didn't. He did not. Uh, I believe uh, Captain Randy Muffley got the phone call that morning. Correct. Um, when I got to work that morning, I got a received a phone call in my office from Orange Beach Police Department, um, notifying us they found a what would you call that boat? A little dinghy, uh, a little dinghy, little little dinghy little. boat um, with a, a note in it referencing Jacob Scott, um, his phone, his mother's name and phone number, and asked us to uh, see if we could make contact with her. So I called Eddie and told him what uh, I had been informed of, and we researched, you know, our in-house history on his mother and found her local address, and so we proceeded to her residence. And when we pulled up um, from dealing with this family, we noticed one of the vehicles was missing. He had a red Mustang that was, wasn't in the yard. It should have been there. So we knock on the door and we're greeted by relatives and we walk inside. They've got... Um, what was the atmosphere like? To be honest, it kind of they were gathered around like they were expecting us to show up. Uh-huh. They had... Welcoming? Some, hostile? No, it was like, well, come on in and see what we have here. Okay. They had uh, a table set up with several handwritten notes that Jacob had uh, written to them. They had his medications lined up on the counter. Uh, they had a laptop computer open. Um, they were viewing <laughs> headstones. They were already making burial arrangements, and they hadn't even notified that he was dead. So, yeah. So they, I would just say that one more time. They were preparing for his, they were preparing yeah, they were making for burial. a funeral. Yeah, they were making burial plans for him. But you hadn't officially notified him that, that he potentially was dead. No, I guess from the notes that they had received from him, you know, they were just assuming he was dead. Uh-huh. They wanted us to believe that also. Right. But they may have jumped the gun a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I believe so. Uh-huh. So you have this, this boat in the water where there's a potential suicide and that then goes over to the coast guard investigative service well yeah it came over to the um to us the coast guard as uh initial uh, someone missing so the coast guard launched their assets the 45 foot patrol to look for the um any missing persons in the water that typically happens whenever um they're notified of something either by phone or by the police departments or radio so they did a grid pattern looking for uh, a missing person. So the White Coast was out there. And how, how how big is that? I mean, if you if there's a boat in the water, how big is your is your search grid? It could expand depending on the uh, the situation. Uh, this one particular, my understanding, they're about a mile off the coast of Florida and Alabama, right on the state line, and they did a probably a mile grid. This and, and it, ever expanding. You know, they they do. You know, weather, the water uh, currents and everything, they try to determine where the person might be in the water if, if there's drift patterns and all. Right. So, so they're in the water for quite a bit trying to, to find them. You know? and, and this is assuming they're looking for somebody who's alive. Yeah, yes, or, or a body. You oh, know, okay. Either way, both of them. And how many boats will this search encompass? This one here just had one. Uh-huh. Um, it, it became readily apparent um, when they saw or they, the Coast Guard learned that there was uh, you know, a gun tied to the to the gunnel of the, the boat and it was and it was you know being that there was a bullet on there they they started 
hearing about this and they this is a handgun or a ruger i believe it, yes a pistol with uh mm-hmm. yeah, with a with a empty shell case and stuck in the the chamber which is uh highly unlikely when someone perfect stove pipe yeah perfect stove pipe <laughs> actually after talking to the sheriff's department here they were explaining that it was actually upside down uh in the in the um, opening of the gun which normally doesn't happen when you have a, a all right for pipe. those who are not gun aficionados because this sounds all sorts of wrong what does that mean that uh the stove pipe uh, it usually occurs when um a shell casing doesn't eject all the way and a, another a round is getting into the barrel at the same time it causes the jam okay and there was a jam, and there was a jam in this gun. Yeah, the, the from the pictures that we've seen, the the shell casing, being prior military and law enforcement, we see several stovepipes and weapons malfunctions. And looking at this one, we just couldn't believe it. Just the way it looked, it just it was too easy. And on top of it, it's tied to the gunnel. Yeah. So you shoot yourself. You know why would it be tied to the gunnel and stovepipe? conveniently sitting there for law enforcement to find or someone to find right you're gonna shoot yourself what do you care if they find a gun yeah possible the, the, the bullet inside the magazine there's blood on that which you know that automatically threw red flags up okay he, essentially look i believe that he was wanting to make it look like here's my blood you know his dna is on it so some, somehow we test it somewhere sometime in the future i think that's that, that i'm assuming that was his train of thought back right. then so no one actually thought he was dead no, uh, myself and Eddie was leaving the family's residence. We looked at each other and we were like, he's not dead. He's yeah. somewhere, but he's not dead. I immediately reached out to our FBI Safe Streets uh, task force officer. Uh, he'd done some digging, uh, immediately found where $40,000 had been removed from an account Jacob had shortly before he disappeared. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were also able to tell that uh, his step, his oldest stepdaughter, had went on two of his bank accounts uh, two weeks before he disappeared. Uh, you know, there there was a lot of that right there. You know, where's the forty thousand dollars? Who right. got it? Right. You know, normally if somebody does in their life, uh, somebody got that money. Right. It went somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't turn up. We watched the accounts, and uh, sure enough, the, the account emptied. Uh, we gave it a few days after the money went in. It was all government funds. It was money from the military and Social Security benefits. Uh, that money disappeared. Uh, we did. We knew who took it. We did go interview them. They admitted to taking it. Um, it, it was government funds. At that point, uh, the person that took it said, "Well, I'm paying his bills. Right. Dead men have no bills. Right. I, you know, don't understand that. Right. But that was their explanation. So, Jamie, th- this was your oldest daughter. Who, yes. Who did that? And what what do you think? I mean, it's speculation it's, on your part, but what what do you think is behind that? She knows what he did. So, what is her rationale? Do you think she? is using the excuse of she is blaming Donna for uh, enticing him. Right. And this was one of Jacob's claims that that you're, that a 14-year-old Donna went after yes. her stepdad sexually. Exactly. And she was a very timid little girl. Mm-hmm. 
So never wore short shorts, anything like that. Right. Why do you think it happened? I mean, what do you think is in his heart and is in his mind that that changed after, you know, for 12, uh, 12 years of you being married where, where he took that, took that extraordinary, you know, horrific turn. That part of, I had blamed myself for a little while because I didn't, you don't want to have sex with someone that hits you and cusses you sure. and calls you names all the time. Right. He was very forceful with sex with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's called rape when you're married, but when someone forces sex on you, so then you don't want to do those things. Sure, sure. So I blame myself for a long time for that. Did I turn him on to my daughter? I, I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's so many things that's went through my head mm-hmm. of what would have made him do this? I don't know because he was having other affairs with other women as well. Uh huh. So I don't know. Right. What was Jacob's mother's stance? It was all Donna's fault. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like I say, when you know when the ball got rolling, and we started finding things, and, and everything was lining up. Everything was lining up perfect, and. That's when we uh, had reached out to the Coast Guard mm-hmm. uh, investigators and told them, you know, about these funds. They actually got me in touch with the VA. Uh, we had those funds cut off. We had informed them of the situation we had, which they agreed to cut those funds off. They also got me in touch with the uh, Social Security Administration, which they cut those funds off as well. Uh, we knew he was alive. We didn't want him out there spending these funds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually affected Jamie when that was done also. Right, yeah. Well, we didn't want that, but it, it was necessary. We had to. You know, we didn't want him having funds to to uh, to help him hide. Mm-hmm. And so I know I got with the captain on that one, and we both agreed that needs to happen. We need to cut these funds off as soon as we can, which we did. Um, and unfortunately, Jamie was another victim there. But um, And I believe shortly after that, I had reached out to the U.S. Marshals. That's when uh, when I got in touch with Jeremy Stilwell, and, and he took the ball and started running with it. Mm-hmm. So... The marshals come in to play. So we, we opened up our fugitive investigation. Right. Initially, whenever we start a fugitive investigation, one of the main things we try to do is we, we start digging in. We try to develop a pattern of life of people. Uh, we see what they do, what they like, how they act, who they associate with, their friends, their family. Uh, we try to develop a profile of them, of mm-hmm. every aspect that we can learn about them. So that's what we did in this case is we, we started digging. And um, we immediately, we, we had been told by uh, Jackson County about the, the cash that was taken out. So we immediately went into financial records so we could uh, exploit that avenue as well. And we were able to find um, the transaction where about a month and a half before the boat was launched that Jacob uh, cashed in his retirement account 
and actually wrote himself a check for 45000 and walked into a bank in Jackson County and, and retrieved that, that cash out of the bank. Mm. So we knew at this point this wasn't a, a typical fugitive investigation. Um, this is before he had done the hoax suicide or after? No, this was before the uh-huh. suicide. This was in the pre-planning stage. Uh-huh. Um, so once we realized there was pre-planning in this case, that's kind of when we realized that this is this is not the typical fugitive case. Right. Uh, it wasn't a um, decision one day to take off and run and not be prepared. This was a case where uh, the individual actually prepared for this. We also looked into his history. We knew that he was in the Army. We knew that he spent 13 years in the Army. We knew that um, he spent time overseas. We also knew that he was injured in Iraq. Um, and in 2011, he received a Purple Heart for injuries that he sustained over there. Mm-hmm. So we, we had a pretty good, at this point, we had a pretty good profile of him and um, who his family and who his friends are. Right. So uh, we immediately started um, talking to people, started interviewing people locally and in other states. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting. It was it was quick in this case that we realized that um, this is not the typical case because typically when we interview people, uh, people tend to assist us um, right. at, at least a little bit. Right. Um, and we, we received a lot of uh, backlash from the family in this case. Even the first time we approached certain family members, um, certain family members would become belligerent, um, irate towards us, and even the first instant, uh, telling us they were going to sue us, they were going to sue our agency, and and basically... Um, sue you, I'm just curious, sue, sue you for what? Uh, harassment was the oh, very okay. first yeah. uh, issue yeah. we, we encountered. We didn't get a whole lot of info out of our interviews. One of the things we did know about Jacob is that he loved that Mustang, he loved that red Ford Mustang. Uh-huh. It was a Mustang, right? Yeah, it was a Mustang Cobra. And during an interview in um, in Denver with one of the family members, they actually uh, searched the uh, the home where that family member was residing and located that Mustang in the garage of that family member. So they that family member was uh, confronted with that information and provided paperwork to the marshal service where that had been transferred over to that family member dated before the boat was mm-hmm. was recovered. If that family member knew he was going to commit suicide, why would he do that? Or why is he getting rid of these assets? It just it didn't make mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. And we were actually told that the reason why that vehicle was transferred into the family member's name was so that the victim's mother wouldn't receive it in the divorce. All the paperwork lined up with that. Um, there wasn't much we could do with that. Um, so that Mustang should have gone to Jamie. It should have. It should have. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Another thing that didn't go to her. Right. 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 Um, we had also knew there was family in Texas. So we sent our uh, one of our offices in Texas to interview family members. Basically the same story. Everyone thought he was dead uh, or everyone told us they thought he was dead. Right. Nobody's talked to him since um, the boat was launched. And so we kind of uh, we kind of ran out of things to do at that point because mm-hmm. uh, we had already interviewed family members and friends. So we decided that we were going to announce uh, five thousand dollars for any information that led to the arrest of Jacob. So we put that out there. Um, we also paid for billboards in Mississippi 
um, Texas and Colorado. So we put multiple billboards up for an extended period of time, just asking for the public if they had any information, uh, just to please call the marshal service. Right. So with that, we began getting several tips. We were getting tips all over the place. Um, our first really big tip that came in, it was a um, associate of the Scott family that reached out to the marshal service. That associate was told that Jacob's mother was going to go see Elvis and Jacob in Tennessee. So the, the weird thing about that is we've already developed this profile on, on uh, all these people in this case. So it, it wasn't surprising to say that um, Jacob's mother was going to go see Elvis. She's a huge Elvis fan. We knew that. She goes to Elvis events uh, and kind of idolizes Elvis. We were able to find that Jacob's mother purchased two tickets to a Elvis Presley tribute concert in Tennessee. Um, we didn't know who the second ticket was for, but we, uh, we felt like this was very good info. Right. If, uh, if, if you're on the run and you want to meet up with someone, a concert's a great place to blend in, mm -hmm. talk about what you want to talk about, and then go your separate ways. Mm -hmm. So we felt like this was a very, very good tip. We had U.S. Marshals, including myself, that went to this concert. It was in Tennessee, so we knew that um, Jacob's mother was probably staying in a hotel or with someone, but we didn't know exactly where she was staying. So we, we established surveillance at this concert, and we were able to see Jacob's mother come to this concert with another female. Um, they were there about four or five hours they walked around Graceland. Um, that's where the concert was being held. Um, they went to a local hotel where the unknown female at that time, we still hadn't identified her, mm -hmm. got out of the vehicle, went into the hotel, and then um, Jacob's mother left that hotel and went, uh, ended up going to another hotel. When she got to the second hotel, she exited her vehicle, went in a back door, so we knew that she was probably staying at that hotel. Right. So we... Because uh, we you, need, you need the key card to right. get in a back door. But, right. right, absolutely, absolutely. At this point, it was about 11, 12 o'clock at night. That night, uh, there were three managers still there that late. Um, we were able to show a photo of Jacob to them, mm -hmm. and um, one of the managers stated, yes, the day before I saw Jacob's mother walk in the front door of the hotel with a man that looked just like him. Right. So we, uh, and based on the tip and uh, everything that we had learned previously, we felt really great about this. We felt there was a good possibility that he might be there with her. So um, we were able to use a... Um, a law enforcement technique mm -hmm. that we use sometimes and we were able to get in that hotel room with her and were able to verify that she was the only one in that hotel room right, right. and that there was no other male clothing in that hotel room we never saw jacob obviously if we did we would have took him in custody right but based on the the information we had and the manager statements and Unfortunately, we weren't able to get surveillance video of that hotel. Their, their, their system wasn't working properly. But based on everything we knew, we thought it was a very good possibility that mm -hmm. he was there at some point. This also goes to speak about the tremendous number of man hours that you're spending uh, and the number of people to uh, follow up on these 
Absolutely. Tips. But in, in a in a crime or a fugitive that's accused of this type of crime, mm-hmm. it's it's a endless amount of money right. and resources we're willing to spend. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the great thing about the Marsh Service is we have a lot of resources and especially with a crime like this, we're gonna we're gonna exploit everything we can. Right. Um, that was really our first big tip that we had. So at that point, we had already were very confident that he was alive. But he seems unusual in the fact that you're looking at his pattern of life. And the thing that I've been told by many deputy marshals is that it's really hard to break your pattern of life. And yet this seems to be one of those instances where he was able to do that. It is. And it's a lot easier to break your pattern of life if you have other resources available to you. Right. We were obviously getting other tips in. We went back and interviewed a lot of the immediate family in this case. And it was always interesting. Every time we interviewed the family, they were very defensive towards us. Um, They always wanted to know what we were doing. I've had family members ask, are you up on my phone? Are you watching my bank records? All this kind of stuff. They would often try to convince us that he was deceased by stating he had mental issues or he was depressed or he was on medication and he had to have this medication. Um, I've had a family member tell me that it's the victim's fault in this case, which is just, it's, it's absurd. Like right. it's, this is a 14 year old little girl right. and, and, and this is her stepfather. It's absurd. Right. I also had a family member call me when that family member read an article and the title of the article was military veteran who got teen pregnant, wanted dead or alive was the title of the article. And when this family member called me, Um, As soon as they started speaking to me, I could tell that they were pretty agitated in their tone. Right. And they wanted to know if the marshal service would put out an article like that. And I explained to them, no, we didn't put out that article. And um, this family member stated that they just couldn't believe that anyone would put out an article promoting people to shoot Jacob on site because the title was Wanted Dead or Alive. And I explained to that family member, that's not the context of the article. And I think that's just the way you're reading it. Right. And, <clears throat> and also, um, if he's wanted dead or alive, if you already think he's dead, why do you care? Right. And that's, that's what I was going to say is that if, if you truly believed he was dead, right. who cares if what the article says? Nobody's going to shoot him on sight if he's truly dead. Right. You know, so it, it really kind of solidified everything for us and uh, let us know that we're definitely on the right path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We... Uh, decided to upgrade this case to a U.S. Marshal's Top 15 Most Wanted case. What that does is basically gives us an endless amount of resources with our agency and other agencies. It also gives us a lot more money that we can offer for information leading to arrest. Mm-hmm. The reward money was originally five grand. Once we upgraded it, it was bumped up to 25 grand. We also were able to um, put out a national press release stating that we were adding him to the Marshal Service 15 Most Wanted list. Mm -hmm. And then we also released some additional photos with that. The same day that we added him to the 15 Most Wanted, he was profiled on In Pursuit with John Walsh on the 15 Seconds of Shame portion. So once that happened, we received a tip late, late that night. And the tip was somewhat vague, but it said that there's an individual who looks just like Jacob Scott that has the same tattoo on his forearm 
Um, and that was one of the photos that we released. Uh-huh. It was the tattoo of the compass and, and the feathers on his arm. Uh, the tipster said that the guy was going by the name of Luke, and he was living in an RV in Antlers, Oklahoma. Mm. And um, the tipster also stated that Luke has told him he's from Mississippi. Right. So we thought it and, was... And um, does he have any family in Antlers, Oklahoma? Well, at that point, it was kind of known who the um, who Luke was. Right. But we felt like it was enough that we definitely needed to respond. Um, at this point, it was pretty late in the night. Uh, we reached out to our eastern district of Oklahoma's office. Mm-hmm. And uh, within two hours after that, uh, we had guys on the ground in Antlers, Oklahoma, uh, This within two hours of receiving that tip. They decided that on approach, the RV that he was living in um, was one of the drivable RVs, like a very small motorhome. Right. So they put spike strips in front of the tires. Uh before they started making call-outs, just in case he jumped in the driver's seat and took off driving. Right. Um, once they had the spike strips in place, they got on their PAs, turned on their emergency lights, and started calling for Jacob Scott to come out of the trailer. Within a few minutes, a guy came out of the trailer. He looked like Jacob Scott. They detained him, um, was trying to figure out who he was, asked him who he was. He wouldn't provide his name. Uh, he was being somewhat evasive about who he was. So they checked his tattoos versus the tattoos that we knew mm-hmm, Jacob Scott mm-hmm, had. Right. And whenever they checked his tattoos, he admitted he was Jacob Scott from Mississippi. And he even told our guys, uh, you got me guys. So at that point he knew he was done. Right. And he was taken into custody and transported to the Pittsburgh County jail in Oklahoma. And how long was this man up? This manhunt was a little over a year and a half. Yeah, yeah, I think 18 months. Yeah, right about 18 months is how long this was. The marshal service uh, did receive that tip from that individual, and the marshal service did pay that tipster 25 grand. Right. For I know that. you guys like to always highlight that you know you do you do pay. Absolutely. If if you provide information and it leads directly to the rest, as it did in this case, mm-hmm. we we will pay you. Right. And that's what we uh, we ask individuals. If you if you know something, come forward. You know, uh, and it, it it worked out well for an individual in this case. Mm-hmm. So Jacob comes back, and he is sentenced in state court. Yes. Yes. He was he was tried in in Jackson County, Mississippi, and found guilty on all counts. And his sentence? Uh, 85 years. Do you actually serve the 85? Yes, and it, it was a day-per-day sentence. So uh, effectively, he'll the rest of his life will be spent in prison. No chance of getting out? No, no chance of parole. During that time frame, like I say, uh, you know, there were family members still supporting Jacob and going after Jamie. Yeah, that's astonishing. And trying to make Jamie... And, and the victim's life as hard as possible, you know, as hard as it could be. Right. Awful. You know, that that actually took place while uh, the marshals were hunting for him. Mm. She was she, she had to go through that. Jamie, how'd you feel when, when they caught him? Or was it more of a relief when he was sentenced, knowing he's never getting out? I was so beside myself when Jeremy got him. I, I mean, I knew that he would. He was very positive and... Like I said, Eddie and Jeremy um, kept, I kept talking, you know, in contact with them. And they did, 
not tell me anything, but just let me know that they will get him and mm. that they're getting closer. And um, so I did, you know, but during that time I was going through so much harassment. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, and dealing with having a 15-year-old at that time, you know, during that time and a, a new baby that I was having to help raise. Mm-hmm. And so it was so much uh, emotion, you know, in every direction. Um, But I did feel so much relief when they found him because at least I knew that he would at least have to stand trial. And then once he was found guilty and they gave him the 85 years, it was a relief. But I felt like I would have had more relief, but I didn't. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. I thought maybe that I, it it did lift a burden off of me a lot, but there's still a lot more burden. Right, and how and how's life for you now after oh. after it's over and 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 you and Donna are you still getting harassed by the family? Yes, family? I actually um have a federal case with Jacob right now. Um, He's suing me for things still from the divorce. He's suing you. Yes. And um, so I'm, after losing everything and getting on our feet, I'm having to pay attorney fees again and still fight through the federal case because of things that I did get in the divorce that they feel like I shouldn't have as far as um, a little bit of money. And that was not even through that. It was through Social Security for the child's reimbursement mm-hmm. um, of me taking care of him for that years that he was on the run. Right. Um, and they had to stop the Social Security, so he feels like I should not have that money. I'm still being harassed. His mom still comes to my home. Not now, because I just moved recently, but she'll still come to my home and stands in the road screaming cussing me and you know so during that divorce the judge awarded property uh to jamie uh his mother had went after her saying that that was her property that was given away right came to us on multiple occasions filed reports wanting her arrested for grand larceny she just kept going after her and kept going after her you know, uh, it was every other day her calling there wanting Jamie arrested. Uh, you know, and, and I know she lost her home, uh, car, you know, everything involved. Uh, I'm so sorry. You know, not just finding this out that, that, that this was happening to her daughter and it was her husband who was doing it. She was left with nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because the check stopped coming. Correct. Yeah, he he refused to uh, to pay. Mm-hmm. What 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 did what was court ordered? He he did not pay it. And how's Donna doing? She's um she's going day by day. Mm-hmm. Day by day, she's a very good little mama, and we love that little boy with our whole heart. Mm-hmm. It was something good that came out of it, a horrible thing. But she is a good mama, and she's, like I said, going day by day with her trying to recover. That's really wonderful to hear. As we wrap this episode up, Jamie, do you have any 
final thoughts that you'd like to share? I do. I just would want to tell people that if you see the slightest behavior changes or any, anything that you would think that was small, just pay attention more. With him scratching her back all the time or laying beside her and scratching her back or him saying that they were talking, you know, those times I wouldn't didn't want to think anything. We had right. been married 10 years. I thought right. that he was just being sexually abusive to right. me. I right. would have never thought it would be my one of my children. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to add is that with with sexual abuse, there is what I call uh, a ripple effect of destruction. So the the abuse doesn't just affect the the victim or victims; it affects the entire family. It affects friends, and it's not uncommon for um, in a situation like this where you have a child being sexually abused. Um, if you have family members who didn't notice that, for them to blame themselves. So that is again the fault lies with the offender in these cases. Mm-hmm. So I just want to point that out. That's a good point. I, 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 there are no words to express my uh, regret at how much you had to endure. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for coming in and telling your story and sharing with everyone. And I think there's a lot that people can take away. And there, I think, I think this will cause people to be just a little bit more on guard. And it's unfortunate because you shouldn't have to be on guard with one of your family members. And yet, I think, isn't that the majority of the people who commit sexual offenses? It's usually other family members, right? I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. And I think people can can learn from your experience. So thank you very, very much, Jamie, for telling everybody about your your ordeal. You're welcome. And uh, thank you very much to the Coast Guard Investigative Service, uh, Bev and John, and Eddie from uh, Jackson County, and uh, Jeremy Still from the uh, U.S. Marshal's Office. One more piece of business. If you think what we're doing is important and you'd like to help us spread the word, we would really appreciate it because we're just getting started. Uh, Please subscribe, follow, leave a five-star rating, and a glowing review. And hopefully more people will find out about us. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshal Service. Stay safe, everyone. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.